This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. As I approached the annex, the deep boom of gunfire reverberated off the surrounding buildings. Standing on the bike's pedals, I coasted and scanned the area ahead of me. A man wearing dark clothes appeared in the middle of the road. He walked toward me, holding a long gun at his waist. As he walked, he fired toward the housing area to his right, then swung the weapon to his left and fired towards the hospital. My field of view shrank. I had tunnel vision, focused solely on the man on the road. I veered right, gliding the bike up onto the sidewalk in front of the annex. I leapt from the bicycle. Momentum carried me forward as I grasped my pistol, unsnapped the holster strap of my thumb, and drew my Beretta. I knelt on the sidewalk, sat back on my right foot, and braced my left elbow on my left knee. I was in the open. Instinctively, I thumbed the safety lever on my pistol upward, ensuring that it was in the fire position. As I gripped the pistol with both hands and steadied it in line with my target, my eyes never left the gunman, but I was aware of movement around and behind him, people scurrying and crouching behind cars, and what looked like a person lying exposed behind a vehicle about 125 yards down the road. I yelled, police, drop your weapon, put it down. He continued moving toward me and fired again to his side. I didn't see anyone in his line of fire, though I knew I needed to stop him. I also knew shooting at him would endanger others in the area. I yelled again, police, drop it, put it down now. He picked up speed, almost running at an angle toward me and toward the annex. He slowed and took a more deliberate aim, firing in my direction. I felt a sense of relief. The threat he posed outweighed the danger of me shooting in the vicinity of innocence. Without conscious thought, my index finger slid inside the Beretta's trigger guard. My finger pressed the trigger as I tracked the threat. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm going to cover the book where that quote just comes from. And that is Warnings Unheeded by Andy Brown, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. This is book 19 of 52 for my 2019 reading list. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be a brief introduction of the book. Second segment will be a question and answer with the author himself. It's a first for this podcast. And the final segment will be the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. So let's jump into segment one here. The author, Staff Sergeant Andrew P. Brown. He goes by Andy, and he's an Air Force law enforcement veteran who now works for the Department of Homeland Security. As for who suggested the book, it was suggested by the author himself, Andy. He sent me a copy of the book, and he said he thought I'd enjoy the book whether I ended up covering it on the podcast or not. And so as part of this project, I'll, I'll receive books throughout the year from authors or for the, from their publicists, and in the hopes that I, I read them or, or will cover them on the podcast. And I, I do try to include one or two books a year that have been sent to me, and th- there's a few reasons I do that. First, if, if I ever become an author and write a book, I and I start sending the book to people, I, I would hope for the same treatment back to where people would read it, they would provide feedback. Uh, so that, that's the first reason. And the second reason is that some of the best surprises so far have been in these books that have been sent to me. They're not ones that I would have come across in any other way. And so the fact that they were sent to me caught me in a way that, that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed the books and, and, and got a lot out of them. So 
I read this book between May 30th and June 2nd of 2019. I'm recording this June 6th, so just four days ago is, is when I finished it. It's a 324-page book. That means I read 108 pages per day. It took eight hours, 20 minutes, and 41 seconds, which averages out to a minute 33 per page. I know it may seem dorky to to track that, but I, I really like seeing how different books, how long they take, and then I can kind of gauge my excitement level of the book by how many pages I've read per day. And in this one, uh, 108 per day is is well on the high end of the spectrum. I need to be reading about 48 per day to get through all 52 of my books this year. So if I'm reading 108 pages in a day, uh, I'm, I'm really into the book. I, I can't put it down and and I am sacrificing sleep to, uh, to, read, to read more of that book. The structure of the book follows what's called narrative nonfiction, which is fact-based storytelling that makes people want to keep reading. So basically, the author does a ton of research, covers the whole aspect, all, all different aspects of, of a particular story, but tells it in a way that, that it almost reads as fiction. It, it, it reads as a story. Some other books that have been part of the Books of Titans project that are also narrative nonfiction are The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien and The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. This, this one starts out with the author, Andy Brown, revealing that he has just shot a gunman who is in the midst of a mass shooting at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington. This is in 1994, and the gunman's name is Dean Melberg, who has a history of mental problems, was actually recommended that he be removed from the Air Force at least five different times and was never removed until until the very end, until, until it was too late. And he has walked into a hospital at Fairchild and has just started shooting. He, he targets two doctors who played a role in suggesting that he be, be removed from the Air Force. He starts with, with killing them and then, and then just kind of goes on a, on a rampage. Four days later, at the same Air Force base, a B-52 that is on a practice run before an upcoming air show crashes, killing all four pilots aboard. There's a saying that says there are old pilots, and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. And Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Bud Holland, the pilot of the B-52, was an old, bold pilot. He was old in the sense that this was going to be his last air show. He was retiring after that. And he was bold in the sense that he did maneuvers in the B-52 that really shouldn't have been done. And this was a known thing. There were many times that uh, it was suggested that he not be allowed to fly anymore. He had some close calls. And there were whole sets of pilots that would refuse to fly with him. And yet he continued to fly. And so as the title of this book suggests, warnings were definitely unheeded. In the case of the, the gunman, multiple issues with psychological issues and mental issues and with the pilot doing things he, he should not have been doing as a pilot. There's a third story in this book, though, and that is of the author's role in killing the shooter. And not, not in the traditional sense of, of the heroics of the author of, look at me, I, I killed the guy, I stopped this gunman before he killed more people. 
But the story of the author's role and how that devastated his life, how he experienced severe trauma from that event, and how when he was attempting to get help, he got stuck in a catch-22. Because if he sought help, he had to go to a, a psychologist. But if he went to a psychologist, he had to turn in his badge and gun so he couldn't continue in his job. So his response was just to stuff the trauma, to stuff the stuff it deep inside. He began drinking, but none of this went away. To, and it got to the point where he would do routine traffic stops and he would go up to the person who he, he had just pulled over and he would look down and realize that his hands were just shaking. And so this book became his healing process. It became his way of confronting the information from that day, seeing that he did all that he could have done, and to, to move forward. This, this book is his healing process. As for my initial reaction to the book, I, I could not put it down. Uh, as I stated before, I, I, I read through it rather quickly. And it struck a chord with me, and I'm not completely sure why, but I, I think a lot of it just has to do with the author's role in the event and then the author's honesty in dealing with that after, after the fact. I uh, bought the book for my uncle. My uncle's a B-52 pilot, and so just in reading about uh, B-52s a lot in this book, just made me think of my uncle a lot, and, and uh, so called him after finishing the book and, and then bought him a copy as well. As for who should read the book, well, if, if you're interested in, in narrative nonfiction, an intense book, uh, it, it really an exciting book in a, in a lot of ways, uh, but also a, a deep book on, on a lot of levels, this is a good book. If, if you're interested in looking at events that lead, lead up to mass shootings or mass casualty events to see what could have been done to stop them, this is also a great book in that sense. And if you suffer from any type of trauma, it, it's a helpful book to see how Andy dealt with the trauma after this event. When beginning to read this book, Andy let me know that he would be available for any questions while I read the book. That was like music to my ears. I read so many different books where I'm writing questions in the margins, I'm writing in the back of the book, and just questions that come up as I'm reading the book. And I never get to ask the author, um, but I got to ask the author about this book. So that, that was a really neat experience for me. And so I called Andy uh, a few days ago and recorded the call, and I'm going to share some of those clips from, from that phone call on, on different topics that are, are related to the book, but also uh, related to, to Andy's life since, uh, since this event. So the first thing I want to start off with is Andy's purpose for writing the book. He wanted to share his story, and, and like I said, the, the research into the story is what helped him to move, to move on with his life and to make peace with himself. So here's a, here's a neat clip that, that describes his purpose for writing the book. I felt that it was important to share my story so that others could benefit from 
my experience and learn what not to do in some cases, but also to explain about PTSD because there seems to be a, a trend in the news where the headline is that somebody with PTSD committed this murder or attacked this person and they, the media seems to be trying to make people afraid of people with, with PTSD or veterans. And I, I think that's unfair and it's not uh, accurate. Mm-hmm. But also I wanted to help remove the stigma for, for people who are not seeking treatment because they're afraid that they're going to be judged. Next, I wanted to know what it was like to research about the life of someone who you had killed. So I asked him directly about that. In researching his life, did that make it harder to make peace with yourself and uh, working through You go through it, your, your PTSD after, after the event. Did that make it easier or, or harder in, in that process? Uh, it was helpful to learn his history just out of curiosity, and it's, it's good to uh, dig into these incidents and be able to predict future ones based on somebody's behavior. But as far as helping me process the incident, I didn't find so much help in learning about him. It was more in uh, researching the incident and writing out the difficult scenes, the scenes that, that troubled me, writing them and rewriting them and, and re-experiencing uh, the incidents in a safe space was helpful. Every time I confronted a difficult scene and, and uh, processed the emotion, it was easier to uh, deal with and had less effect on me. Hmm. Because other, otherwise it's just in your head the whole time. If, if there's not an outlet for it, it's, it's, it's in your head. Yeah, I just spent so many years suppressing and trying not to think about it. Never really did uh, take the time to, to process it. And and also researching the incident helped answer any questions that were were lingering. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that to be... Just allowed sorry, me to ahead. process it. Yeah. I, I found it really interesting when, when you said that um, when you got the, the timeline and the tapes that, that allow you, allowed you to time everything out, that that, that helped, helped start the process of making peace with everything because you, you knew at that point you had done everything you could. You had, you had gone as fast as you could. Um, and just a thing that popped in my mind is like the truth, the truth shall set, set you free. Um, and just, it, that was neat that I think a lot of people just try to hide and, and not want to, to get more details, but the, those details actually helped you to find peace with it. Yeah, it was really nagging me. When I responded to the uh, call of, of shots fired, I was three-tenths of a mile away, and I was on bike patrol that day. So I was experiencing the, the physiological effects where time slowed down, and, and I had tunnel vision and such. So it, afterwards, it, it just seemed like it took me forever to get there. And I was feeling a lot of guilt about the lives that I was unable to save. So that ate at me for quite a while. Like I was trying to figure out what I could have done differently or how I could have gotten there quicker. Mm-hmm. It took several years to get those tapes that you referred to. But at coming to them, it, I was able to determine that it only took less than two minutes from the first radio call to me 
radioing in that uh, that I had shot the gunman and he was down. And that's a, a pretty quick response time. And then I realized that I couldn't have gotten there any sooner and eventually realized that I did everything I put in, began the process of forgiving myself and learning to, to uh, deal with the, the incident and not feel any more guilt. I was really impressed with Andy's honesty about his PTSD and he obviously struggled with it. There were there were many years where he he ran to alcohol, where he just kind of stuffed it in instead of dealing with it. But he eventually did deal with it. He made peace with it, and and he's much better now. And it made me think of some some lines of a, another book that I just read, "The Coddling of the American Mind." And uh, here's here's some quotes from that. It is vital that people who have survived violence become habituated to ordinary cues and reminders woven into the fabric of daily life. Avoiding triggers is a symptom of PTSD, not a treatment for it. Cognitive behavioral therapists treat trauma patients by exposing them to the things they find upsetting. At first in small ways, such as imagining them or looking at pictures, activating their fear, and helping them habituate, grow accustomed to the stimuli. In fact, the reactivation of anxiety is so important to recovery that some therapists advise their patients to avoid using anti-anxiety medication while, under, while undertaking exposure therapy. That's the end of the, the quote there. But it, that, that made me think of, of Andy, and, and that's basically what he did with, with this book, is he confronted the evidence, he confronted the events of that day, the, the, the timeline, and he realized that he had done everything that he could. And so the, this book is just neat in that sense, that, that it's his, his healing process in a way. Now I want to get into just a few other things that we discussed during the call. The first is, I asked him about the response of the survivors to this book. And, and here was his answer. been overwhelmingly positive. I had a lot of cooperation with the survivors and, and their families in researching the book. And a lot of them have uh, contacted me and after reading it, saying that it had helped them probably similar in a way that it helped me to, to just answer any, any of the questions that they had about it. And uh, also to just help them process it. One really interesting part of this book is when Andy gets into how media responded the day of the shooting uh, and what, one side note here, he, he mentioned that this didn't get a lot of play in the national media because this happened exactly during the OJ trial. So the, the OJ trial was blanketing news that entire time. Uh, I remember that. I do not remember these events in the news. So he said it only got national play for, for a couple of days. But when it did get play, uh, especially at the beginning, they, they talked about the shooting as an unexpected event. And it's just such a contrast because you've just read this whole book about how it was not unexpected at all. People his entire life had been saying, this, this guy's going to be one of those guys that, that shoots up a building. And it was just really interesting to then look at the media reports and see how off base they were when you, you had a lot more of the details that were contained in this book. So here's, here's a clip of us discussing that. I yeah. admire your... Uh your project. It's pretty admirable reading that many books and I don't know how you find the time. Well, I, uh, uh, 
like you, I gave up the news. <laughs> I was yeah. <laughs> I was actually uh, glad to, to see you, you talk about that, um, and I'm, I may talk about that in the episode a little bit because um, you you had to give it up as part of the healing process. But then also your descriptions of what the news was saying that day and how far it was from reality, I think was just a good kind of case study. And, and the more I see that, I mean, even if I know, if I'm intimately connected with something and I, that, that gets in the news, like you, you know how off it is and how it's not even close to what actually happened. Um, And so I'd, I'd, I'd rather read a book like yours and, and kind of be able to look back and, and see what led to everything and not, not just get the news story of it. Um, I'd rather read history. Like I just read some books about the Middle East. I'd rather read those to see what has led to where we're at right now as opposed to reading something about Syria right now and, and not really having any context for it other than what that editor and that writer said about it so uh, i i gave up news and, and i've i've pretty much mostly given up tv um so that that's actually opened up a lot of time for for the reading so yeah that, it would and it's probably better for your mental health as well yeah especially with the news i mean i i used to i used to read the paper every day and and um you know would would, would watch the the cable news and stuff and it's just I don't think it's um, I don't think it's very helpful. No, it's it's not healthy to be exposed to that much negativity all the time. Yeah, especially like you say, if it's not even accurate. In this next clip, I tell Andy what one of the hardest parts of the book was for me to read, just in terms of the uh, the tragedy of it. And he he offered a neat tidbit about the the family member. So the co-pilot on on the B fifty two is Lieutenant Colonel Mark. McGeehan, and he had actually requested, he had gone up to his higher ups and requested that, that, uh, Holland, the, the rogue pilot, the, the pilot who had, who was at the helm and, and who, uh, crashed it, that he, he did not want to fly with him. And he said he should be grounded. And so McGeehan did not want his crew to ever fly with Holland again. And so McGeehan would fly with Holland so that his crew wouldn't have to. So Holland is in the plane. They're practicing for this air show. And McGeehan, who had tried to get him grounded, is in the plane. His wife and two boys are watching the B-52. And they see it crash. And you can you just imagine what that family is thinking, where their father... Their, their husband had just had tried to get this guy grounded, had tried to, to make sure that this would never happen. And here they're watching it, and they see it happen. So neat interchange here that ends in a, a, a kind of a neat uh, informational piece that, that I didn't know. Man, one of, the, one of the hardest things was to read the family members who were watching the, uh, the plane crash. Yeah. Man, I, I just can't even imagine. Yeah, especially the, the McGeehan family. Yeah. They all they all knew what their dad was trying to do, and then to see him go down in a plane that he was trying to ground the pilot in the first place, it's really frustrating. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Patrick McGeehan, the older son, he went into the Air Force Academy after he uh, got out of college. Or actually, I think that's where he went to college. But he um, is out of the Air Force now, and he's a Congress, no, a senator in West Virginia. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he's a really uh, honest politician that we wish, wish we had more of, but I hmm. appreciate I've been in touch with him, and I appreciate following his career. Yeah. Make a uh, lot of really things in there. Yeah, that's really neat. In this last clip, I, I discussed with Andy the thing that was most disturbing to me about the whole story of the shooter, and that was that the, the morning of the day of the shooting, the shooter slept until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He was at a hotel, and he basically woke up at 1 p.m. and got a taxi and, and went over to the hospital and just started shooting. And, and it just, if you, if you know you're going to do that, wouldn't you be awake? Wouldn't you be thinking about it? And he was just sleeping soundly. Like the, the hotel staff had to go in and, and wake him up. And it was just so disturbing to me. And so I, I, I discussed that a little bit here with, with Andy. One of the most disturbing things about that day was that he slept into one o'clock. Yeah. He was a weird dude. I think it was probably because he was staying out late at the strip joints and such. Yeah. But he but had a... So, hit. like, if he knew... If, if he knew he was going to do that, I, it just seems like he wouldn't be sleeping. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That's a good point, huh? That he was a, he was sleeping pretty soundly. Yeah, like he slept what? through the... I mean, somebody had to come in the room to wake him up, and he had to pay an extra day at the, the hotel because he slept in so long. Yeah. Yeah, I never really thought about that, but that just tells you about his mindset, that it, it didn't really uh, seem to be on his mind much as far as he wasn't worried about it. Yeah. Well, and then every, everyone that saw him, they noticed, during the shooting, noticed his eyes and just a vacant, vacant yeah. look and... Oh, man. Yeah, it, it was hard to read about some of that, but it, but also really important. To finish out segment two here, I want to highlight a couple things that are in the afterword of the book. The first is this, the idea of running amok. And here's, here's a quote from the afterword. Mass public murder is not a new phenomenon and has likely been happening since the dawn of civilization. One of the earliest known accounts was observed in Malaysia in the year 1516 by Portuguese writer and world traveler Duarte Barbosa. It was again observed in Malaysia by British explorer Captain James Hook in 1770. Both Cook and Barbosa recorded instances of lone tribe members armed with swords indiscriminately attacking fellow villagers without apparent cause. The unprovoked attacks would continue until the intervention of other armed tribesmen. The melee re referred to the phenomenon as Menga Mach to make a furious and desperate charge. Today, the term is simply known as running amok. Running amok was at one time believed to be a cultural condition occurring only in primitive tribes. In 1849, amok was recognized as a psychiatric condition having two forms, bear amok, in which the perpetrator suffered from a depressive mood disorder and experienced a personal loss, 
and amok in which the perpetrator suffered from a depressive, psychotic, and or personality disorder and attacked out of revenge for a perceived insult or injustice. The thing that stuck out to me there was just that the, these things have always been going on and, um, and gun, guns make it a lot easier to, to do more damage in, in shorter time, but um, these things have always been going on. And so the very next page is how to prepare yourself as uh, average citizens, you know, what, what do you do in these type of events? Uh, if, if, if you're somewhere and, and, uh, and, and there is a shooter there, law enforcement agencies tell people that they have the best chance of surviving an incident of mass public murder if they run, hide, or fight. And so run. Whenever you are out in public, get into the habit of noting the location of, es of escape paths and exits. At the first sign of trouble, leave the area and put as much distance as possible between you and the threat as quickly and as safely as you can. Second, secondly, hide. If the threat is imminent and you cannot ex escape, find a place to hide, preferably one that will protect you from gunfire. If you seek shelter in a room, lock the door and block it with furniture or other obstructions. Once you have hidden, look around your environment for items to use as impro improvised weapons and continue to look for an opportunity to escape. And the last one is fight. If you are appropriately armed or otherwise capable, bringing the fight to the attacker is the quickest way to end the threat and save lives. Additionally, if you are unable to escape and have hidden and the threat is approaching and imminent, bring the fight to the attacker. If you are not appropriately armed, use improvised weapons and commit to the attack with sudden and violent aggression until the threat is neutralized. I think it's important to to think about these things and to think about them before you would ever be in that situation, because chances are when you're in it, you're, you're not going to be able to, to think clearly. And so it's important to think about that beforehand. And in segment three, I'll, I'll even get into a, to that a little deeper with, with my one thing. Now into segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this episode. And it's a takeaway that I've had from other books, but it's something that stuck out to me a lot while reading Warnings Unheeded. And that's of daily habits. So I, I shared some comments with Andy and in, in my observations of, of daily habits in, in his life and how that led to, to his response. So I'm just going to play the clip exactly as it was in the, in the phone call. Well, one thing that stuck out to me in the book, and this is kind of, um, so there's been a hundred uh, I'm on the 119th book now for the books of Titans, Titans project. And so over, over those books, I've started to see some, some themes. And one, one of the themes is the importance of daily habits and that I just kept thinking about that while I was reading your book because you're you're talking about your earlier life, and um, you you were you were very particular about getting things in order uh, with your job and training and doing doing the right things whether it felt safe or not. And and it you, you talk about some people saying you know we're we're at a Air Force base here or we're at a base like. Home down. We're, we're safe. You know, we're we're surrounded by by uh, by military. We're surrounded by by people who know what 
what they're doing. And, and your mentality all the time was, I've, I've always got to be prepared. I've always got to be ready. And, and so what, what, when I kept seeing those different tidbits of information throughout the book and then that, that you were the first responder there and you shot the, the gunman, the, the choice hadn't been made. You didn't make the choice when you got that call. You made the choice many years ago. And you made the choice on a daily basis. And I also think that's important in, in these situations. And, and you, you have advice at the end of the book on, on, on different ways to, to handle it. If, if, if anyone ever finds themselves in, in that kind of a situation, um, you've got the list of run, hide, and fight. But those, those things really, those have to be decided before you're in that situation. And it, it's kind of the thing of you, you're not going to be a hero in the situation if you're not a hero in your daily life. And so that's one of the things that impressed me the most in the book was to see you doing the things necessary on a daily basis from a young age to where when the time came, when that day came for you to get that call, you were ready, but you had made that decision well before. Yeah. It's the people who respond accordingly in times like incidents like that under, under stress, they have thought about it ahead of time. And the incidents like that don't happen often enough to where you should worry about them, but they do happen often enough where you should have a plan in place before they occur. Because if, if not, you're going to be wasting precious seconds trying to decide if it really is happening and then trying to think what you should do. And by mm -hmm. that time, it's mm -hmm. uh, too late. Yeah. Well, and then, and then you, you spoke about one of the, one of the, the guys who had been in the building, one shooter was in there. And then when, when he was out of the building, he started, or, or maybe he, that person was even outside of the building, but started, started helping. And it, all of that person's training came back to them at that moment. Uh, and it was kind of a similar thing where, where they had been trained in medical, um, and it, the person said they didn't even think about it. They just, it was unconscious. They just started helping people and they knew what to do. All the training that they had had came back in that moment. And it, it kind of reminded me of that, that too, of, of putting that practice in beforehand in, in, in even if it's uh, for training or, or something like that, and it, it comes back at the right time. Yeah, you're just on autopilot because you've thought about it or more practiced it so much. You don't have to. You've thought about it ahead of time. You don't have to think about it when it's yeah. time to use it. Yeah. That clip makes me think of David Goggins in, in that time he was he was running and a car pulled up next to him and said, what are you, what are you training for? And uh, Goggins replied with life. Just those daily habits. And uh, that's that's what's going to lead to the a better chance for the right response at the, at the time when it's most needed. But those decisions are made when no one's watching. They're made when it's hard to do them. And you're not going to be a hero in the time where it's required if you're not a hero in the drudgery of daily life. That's a theme I see throughout the books I read, and it's one that pops up quite a bit in the Books of Titans books so far. So... 
need to see it again in in this book and and to see it in Andy's life and he he would he would get crap from people all the time of, of you're taking this way too seriously you're you know you're you're way too prepared and all that and and he was always like you know something could happen at any time and so he was he was the person that was was there and and he took out that shooter and it it was not by accident that the shot he took was 70 yards away uh, american football field is 100 yards so if you're in the end zone the guy that he shot was at the 30-yard line, but at the 30-yard line on the opposite side of the field. And, and he, he hit him. So it was an impressive, impressive shot. So to recap, really interesting book. Uh, I couldn't put it down. And just a lot of things to think about with mental illness, PTSD, uh, even thinking in your own life of, of situations you come in contact with where there's things that are not right. And do you, do you stand up at that point? Do you say something? Do you try to stop the things that are, are not right? There are a number of situations in this book where people could have, could have stopped these two men and, and they didn't. And a lot of destruction occurred because of that. That's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank Andy Brown, the author, for uh, the phone call, uh, for sending the book. And it was just a, a delight to be able to, to speak to him. Just a reminder, you can share your reading list on the Books of Titans podcast, uh, actually on the Books of Titans website, by going to booksoftitans.com forward slash mybooks. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter, at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give it a five-star rating in iTunes and share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back next week with another book. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, keep listening. I'm out.